Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. And we thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to gather together to worship you and to praise you. And Father, we pray that as we go through the service tonight, Lord, that you would just open up our hearts and minds to what you have for us. And as we dive into your word, Lord, word, Lord for uh, all the children as they're going to be going down and doing their uh, rehearsal for the musical, Lord, we just pray that you'd work in and through um, their time just learning and memorizing and learning more about the true story of Christmas, Lord, and all that it means. And Father, I just, I just thank you for the volunteers and the leaders that are helping them and working with them and encouraging them. I pray, Lord, that they would just be um, excited, Lord, to learn these things and to grow individually, Lord, as, as followers of Christ, but also, Lord, to use their gifts and talents to please you. And so, Father, we pray for the musical again. Uh, even though we're so far out, Lord, we pray that you'd begin now to work on hearts and minds, to draw people to repentance, and to come to know Christ. So, Father, again, thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for a great day where we can celebrate you and honor you and lift up the name of Christ, which is above every other name. And so we pray that you just give us a great service tonight. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to dismiss all the kids and workers down to practice so you guys can be dismissed. All right. All right. So I will need, uh, as normal, a couple of volunteers. So maybe uh, somebody that can help hand out handouts. Who'd like to do that, Anthony? And then clipboards. Somebody that wants to do clipboards. Going once. Okay, Austin, thank you. So we are going to be in our passage tonight is Ezra chapter 9. So we're giving you guys, I'm giving you a handout for that right now. And so uh, does anyone need a pen? Any pens back there for Zach? If you need a clipboard, Austin's got you taken care of. Anyone else need a pen? Pens? All right. And so uh, the reason I kind of uh, wanted to look into this passage tonight is uh, just in reading through the book of Ezra again recently, um, this passage really jumped out to me. And just uh, this is Ezra's prayer, uh, kind of what's called his priestly prayer. And so to me, just really powerful things that he prays here. And so I'd like to kind of unpack that together with you. Thank you guys for handing that stuff out. Anyone miss something? Anyone not have a handout? Pen. Pen? Yep, absolutely. I would throw it, but I have bad aim, and I might hit Jeff right in the eye. So we don't want any injuries tonight. So in uh, the book of Ezra, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you've studied this before, so you're aware of this. Um, this passage that we're going to be looking at here in Ezra 9 uh, is taking place after the beginning of the Jews returning to the land following the Babylonian captivity. So, so if you've studied uh, the Old Testament, you kind of know the timeline. Uh, the Jews in the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah, uh, they were taken into captivity in Babylon. Uh, after a time in captivity, they were released and allowed to return back to the land. Uh, they were kind of given privileges to be able to do that, still kind of giving homage to the Persian king. And so as they're doing this, they're returning to the land. Uh, the book of Ezra is kind of detailing that return. 
So as they're doing that, they're returning to their homeland. Uh, they are reestablishing their worship to the Lord. And so what they're doing is they're rela- redo- redoing, reestablishing the foundation of the temple. And so they've rebuilt the temple. They're reestablishing the worship there. They're kind of reestablishing themselves in the homeland. Um, and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of together. Um, Nehemiah is a story of them rebuilding the wall around the city. Again, a wall of protection. Um, Originally in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one volume, one book. Um, However, time, some time later, they were divided into two books. Uh, There's actually two other Old Testament books that were originally one volume or one book. Does anyone know what those two Old Testament books that are two books now, but originally were lumped as one. Two Old Testament books. So think really similar styles or authors. Two books that were one and now two. Any guesses? Someone's got to have a guess. It's a good guess, no, but it's a really good guess. Anthony, you got to guess. What do you mean? Like, you're shy? You're never shy. You're like, oh, I don't know. What do I do? No. Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. That's a good guess, though. Okay. Uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah and Lamentations. My understanding is they were originally considered one volume and then divided into two. So again, but you can see why Ezra and Nehemiah would be lumped together. Uh, Because again, they're contemporaries. They kind of overlap their stories. And in fact, we see mention of different events in both books. Um, And so again, it's kind of an interesting timeline. The Jews are returning to the land. They've reestablished temple worship. And they're beginning to kind of reestablish life in their homeland. And then we arrive to Ezra chapter 9. And this is a prayer that Ezra is going to pray And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to look through the passage and the prayer specifically and just make some notes, some observations. Um, Obviously, whatever jumps out to you as far as something that you find unique or interesting in this prayer, um, we want to encourage you to circle, to highlight, to underline, um, and so on and so forth. And so then what we're going to do is break it apart and give you some basic principles to the passage. We'll work through it verse by verse. And then I actually believe uh, when I was reading through this in my own personal readings in the morning, I have a little kind of a a notebook that usually what I'll do is I'll just write down verses, you know, this through that. This is kind of what it's talking about. After I read this chapter one morning, it just kind of jumped out to me that there's a great kind of pattern for prayer here. And I'm not saying it's definitive. I mean, there's other ways you could probably read this. But to me, I just jotted down real quick in my notes that morning. And then after I wrote it down, I went to my desk and I was working on something else. And it was like the Lord was like, that's your passage for Sunday coming up here in a couple of weeks. So God really kind of just like encouraged me through it. So we'll talk about that as well, as well. And maybe it will help you in your own kind of how you pray, or maybe not even how you pray it, another way of praying effectively. So I want to give you guys about 10 minutes to look through the passage, make some notes, some observations, some things that jump out to you. If you see the passage breaking up in a certain way, do that. And then remember there is a, sorry. There is a backside to this. So verses 12 through 15 is on the backside of the paper, so please don't forget that. All right? So we'll give you 10 minutes. Go ahead and start breaking apart the passage, and we'll come back and talk about it in just a moment.
minutes. If you're not done, I know 10 minutes goes by real fast, don't it? Um, but again, I hope that you're learning, like that was 10 minutes. And I know so many people that have told me through the years, you know, I just don't know if I could really give time for devotion. I just don't have time to get in God's word every single day. Like I'm so busy. 10 minutes, like, like it's not a lot of time that we're talking about here. And obviously we know it's going to grow. Um, but I just, I hope that it's been a blessing to you to see that. So uh, quick kind of putting it in its right timeline too. And I should have mentioned this before, but if you want to write above verse uh, five, uh, Ezra was actually written around 440 BC, 440 BC. And where would Ezra fall in the Old Testament towards the beginning, towards the middle, or towards the end of the Old Testament timeline. It falls towards the beginning in our text, but it actually comes towards the end of the Old Testament, right? So this is actually one of the confusing issues for some people about God's word. We find Ezra way early, right, in the Old Testament. But if you think about it, those 12 history books, starting with, you know, Joshua all the way through, those 12 history books will cover what Psalms, and major prophets and minor prophets, they all kind of fall into those history books. So, for example, Malachi actually prophesied during the time of Ezra. But in our canon, Malachi's lumped in with the minor prophets and Ezra's lumped in with the historical books. Okay, so just when you're reading through Ezra, because what's after this, you go into Nehemiah and then Esther, right, and all of that, which Esther kind of takes you back a little bit into the other cultural timeline. But this is all, these individuals and this situation is kind of falling towards the end of the Old Testament because the temple's being reestablished, captivity has ended, and so now we're going to move after these minor prophets and these things, we're going to move into that silent period before the New Testament. So I just wanted to clarify that because I know when you're reading through it, the Bible through in a year, you get to Ezra and you got a long way to go before you get to the end of the Old Testament. But timeline, Ezra actually takes place towards the, uh, towards the end of our Old Testament timeline. Also saying that, let's look at verse 5. And I just wanted to kind of ask, what jumps out to you in verse 5? And that's kind of the way we're going to break it apart. Verse 5 stands alone, and then we're going to do 6 through the remaining of the chapter kind of together, or the passage together. Okay, we're going to lump that together because it's all kind of his prayer. But in what, what in verse 5 just jumps out to you initially, just jumps off the page to you? What did you circle or what did you note in verse 5? Sandra. Yeah, it talks about that word heaviness. Okay, what does that imply? There was a heaviness. What is that speaking to? Okay. So it's kind of the emotion of what leads to verse 6 and on. Okay. That heaviness, that emotional weight of what's going on. What else jumped out to you in verse 5? Okay. So fell to my knees, knees and spread out my hands, right? You can instantly picture that, right? Like you can imagine someone being so overwhelmed, just falling to their knees and just spreading out their arms to heaven, okay? Maybe it, they're lifted up, spread open, or maybe it's just out to the side. But you can start to picture what Ezra's going through right now, like what he's feeling, what he's dealing with. And I love that verse five kind of sets up the prayer. You kind of see a little bit of like, 
the, the scenery, the setting of what Ezra's experiencing, right? Abby. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. Just the outer garments, yep. Yeah, absolutely. And and here's another thing I want to do. We just, like, that was like three minutes, one verse, right? This is the beauty of just studying God's word and letting it unpack itself. And you can instantly, like, we could close right now, and we would leave here knowing that our sin produces or should produce a heaviness, a brokenness, a response in prayer, and that God's okay with this kind of prayer. And we could we could end there. And so when we get into God's word and we're studying God's word, don't just rush through it. Because I know we do these reading plans, and I'm all for that. I try to read, you know, a chapter in God's word a day. I, I try to do that. But there's sometimes we just need to pause and just reflect over a verse and let that verse speak to us. Because there's so much in there, okay? So let's start breaking this apart. Because we're going to walk through really some of the things we just talked about. So the, the title for this passage really in my mind is just the prayer of a priest. This is a priestly prayer, okay? And I know when we think, we think priest in our culture, what do we think? Catholic, primarily, right? But the word priest is not defined by the Catholic Church, right? It's a scriptural term. It's referring to that spiritual leadership, that spiritual um, elder, someone that's directing the spiritual activities of a group or a people. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, we know that in Christ, we're a people. We're, as individuals, we're, we're priests, right? We're the priesthood of the believer, meaning that I can go to God individually without someone else. I have access to the Father. I can be that priest of myself. I don't have to go to someone else because Christ has removed the division, the wall that was between us. Now I have access through Christ. And so here we see he's confessing and praying and going to God on behalf of the people as their priest. He's going in that spiritual function, and so here in verse 5, I just kind of jotted down, Ezra moves from worship to prayer. Now, I know it doesn't sound like that, but verse 5 is actually a verse about worship. And he's actually worshiping God in this, in this way. Now, it doesn't look like what we think worship is. Worship to us is hands lifted high, singing a praise song, hands lifted high, praising him, rejoicing in him. And it is that. But I believe it's also falling on our face before God and recognizing, I need you. We're, we're elevating his worth and his majesty. He's recognizing that the Lord is his God. Like he needs him. So to me, worship is just giving worth and value to someone or something. That's what Ezra's doing. So this is actually a posture of worship and praise to God. Now, preceding this verse, and I know I didn't, I almost wanted to give you the whole chapter, but I decided that might be a lot to work through in 10 minutes. So we just, I just kind of pulled the prayer out. But preceding this verse, in verses 1 through 4, it is revealed to Ezra that there were those that were committing sins in the land among the nation of Israel. Now, this included princes, priests, Levites, and leaders of the city. And the sin they were committing was that they were intermarrying 
with non-believers, non-Jewish women. And so Ezra actually arrived in Jerusalem about four months before this happens. So he's been in the city for about four months. And again, there's a lot that happens in the book of Ezra that Ezra himself wasn't there for. Okay? But Ezra's there for about four months. And after he's there for a little bit, he is informed that this is happening and has been happening. And his response to the sin that he hears is verse 5. So it's not actually Ezra's sin that he's falling on his face or falling on his knees for. It's the sin of the people. And not just the people, the leaders of the nation of Israel. The, the princes and even Levites, some suggest. I mean, there's, there's individuals that are in leadership in the city falling into this sin. This idea of intermarrying with those from foreign lands. Other commentaries actually suggest that they may have even divorced their first wife to remarry for the purpose of political or financial gain. So there's some, some kind of cultural manipulation going on. Well, if I, if I marry this woman, I can get some positive political influence. Now, I mentioned Malachi a moment ago, but Malachi prophesied before Ezra's arrival, which is where we draw some uh, additional information. So you can jot it down. Malachi chapter 2 Verses 10 through 16, we get a little bit more of what's going on at this time. So Malachi 2, 10 through 16. And Ezra's response, as Avi noted, is that he tears his clothes and actually uh, kind of unfolds it more. Um, he actually pulled out part of his, his hair too. He pulled hair and hair from his head and hair from his beard, the as book of Ezra tells us. And why does he do that? Out of shame and repentance. Now this, again, Avi alluded to this, it's a sign to rent their clothes. In some cases, they threw ash on their face or dirt on their face. They would fall on their face. It was basically kind of symbolizing, I need to get as low down to the ground as possible. I need to be as broken as possible. My sin is reflective of the shame of the dirt and the ash. And I'm just, I'm dirty. I'm filthy from sin. And it sounds so harsh to us that somebody would do that. But that's how they, how serious they viewed sin. I'll give you some examples of this. This idea of overwhelming grief that they were under the wrath of God. Genesis 37, 34. Genesis 37, 34. 2 Samuel 12, 16. So 2 Samuel 12, 16. And 2 Kings 19, 1. Just some examples of that idea. So Genesis 37, 34, 2 Samuel 12, 16, 2 Kings 19, 1. There's actually a New Testament example of this as well, at least one that came to my mind. There may be more, but I could only think of one. Uh, this was, again, a common practice of God's people when they repented of sin. And a New Testament example would be Acts chapter 14, verses 14 through 15. Now, this wasn't in response, Acts 14, 14 through 15. This wasn't in response so much as they were sinning, but this is the example of Paul when they start to call Paul a god, your gods, and they rent their clothes. Paul rents their clothes and tries to get as far away from that as possible. No, 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 no. We're just men like you. It wasn't because he was repenting of sin. He was trying to visibly say, don't let that be the case. Like, don't even put that on me. I'm fleeing from this idea of making myself God. 
So again, we see this happening in the Jewish culture and the mindset of just repentance and I'm full of shame, I'm full of guilt, and I need to visibly display that before the Lord. Now, what's also interesting in verse 5, it says in verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my heaviness. So that tells us that when he found out about this, some time went on in Ezra chapter 9, if you start in verse 1, some time went on between him receiving the information and his prayer. And it says he arose. He arose, meaning he was active. So some have suggested that, that Ezra literally just sat there in silence. Could have been for hours. Just silently contemplating everything that he's been told, all the ramifications of that. And I love what one commentary says. This fly just landed on my paper, and it's like not aware of what's going on. So, like I went to swat it away, and it was just like, just kind of shrugged at me. Like, what are you doing? I'm just chilling. Um, so, I love what uh, one commentary says. Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary speaks to this idea of what Ezra may have been feeling. And I love the way they word this. They say this, the intelligence of so gross a violation of God's law, this idea of completely disregarding the commandments of God and intermarrying with those of foreign lands, which we know, again, we're going to talk about in a minute, how serious that has always been for Israel. It says this, the intelligence of so gross a violation of God's law by those who had been carried away into captivity on account of their sin and who, through though restored, were yet unreformed, produced such a stunning effect on the mind of Ezra that he remained for a while incapable of either speech or action. That's that heaviness. He was so overwhelmed by the fact that these very people were taken into captivity for their sin, released back to their homeland, and continued in their sin as they did before. He was so overwhelmed by, by the reality of that. He just sat there. He couldn't even speak or move. He was just broken by that, the hard-heartedness of the people. But this also reveals how serious sin is and how we should treat it very seriously when we ourselves or others fall into sin, not in a condemning way, but in a heartbroken response considering God's goodness. When I give in to a sin, I should be so overwhelmed, not because I can't believe I did that. I was so dumb and and beat myself up in the face of the goodness of God. Like, why would I ever choose that when I have the goodness of God given to me in grace? Why would I ever turn from that to this foolishness? That's what Ezra is saying. How could you be so blind? Now, Ezra is not perfect. I know He's a human being. He's made sin decisions, as we all have. But he's so overwhelmed by that. And it leads him to the prayer. It leads him into the prayer. Now, I'm going to kind of walk through it. And I'll highlight a few verses here. But verses 6 through 15 is his prayer. So, and actually, we'll do this. I I wasn't, you guys just read it. But I'd like to read it together, if that's okay. Um, So verses 6 through 15, if there's somebody that would like to read, um, that would be awesome. I'm just going to have you read the whole passage, if that's okay. But I'd love to read it together and kind of walk through it then. So is there somebody that would like to read verses 6 through 15 for us? Kelsey, awesome.
Thank you, ma'am. To me, that's a powerful prayer. I mean, just could you, now we picture it in our minds. We know his situation. We know his heart going into it. And as he's praying this, you can feel the weight of his emotion just calling out to God. He's overwhelmed. He's, he's shamed and yet also praising God through this prayer. Uh, also, we notice, we talked about it a little bit here. We notice some postures of prayer on my knees with hands outstretched. Again, this is not saying, let me just kind of put a caveat here. This is not saying this is the only way we pray. Okay, this is a a example of a posture of prayer. In scripture, we find people standing and praying, kneeling, laying on the ground, praying, uh, prostrate before the Lord. Uh, There's many different postures of prayer, right? It's not, this is the only way we can physically position ourselves so that God will hear us. Uh, We are beyond that in Christ because we are allowed to pray. Sometimes the spirit may lead us to pray a certain way. Sometimes, why is Ezra praying this way? He's overwhelmed. There's just emotion. All I can do is fall down and, and he says, I don't even want to look up. Like, I don't want to look to the heavens. Remember the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the publican and the Pharisee in the temple? One looked up to heaven, boasting in his spiritual resume. The other one looked down, just hitting his chest. Show mercy to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the one that went home free and righteous and forgiven. And so again, we see these different postures of prayer. One is not right and one wrong. And so be careful there because I've been in churches, you've been in situations where people almost seem to suggest if you're not doing X, Y, or Z in your prayer, it's not as holy or spiritual or whatever. It's the same thing about worship. I used to get so frustrated when uh, the college class I went to, the worship leader, with a desire to draw out what he believed was an expression of worship. And his heart was in the right place, but he would always say, all right, let's lift our hands on this next song. Let's do this on this next song. Let's do that on this next song. And I, I would just get kind of irritated. Why? What gauges my spirituality by raising my hands or not raising my hands? You're just provoking a physical response so you believe you're leading us in true worship. Rather, if the Spirit leads you to lay, raise your hands, you raise your hand. And that's an example in Scripture. Do you realize the person sitting in worship with their hands in their pockets just singing along could be worshiping more than the one raising their hand? Because it's not a posture of the body that matters. It's the posture of the heart, right? 
We're worshiping in our heart and spirit and in truth. And so here we see an example, though. Nothing wrong with this. Okay, nothing wrong with this. We go on from there. And I'm going to kind of walk through. Again, I'll give you a lot of different things here as far as the whole prayer. I'll try to come back to specific verses as we, as we go. Uh, we must also note that Ezra lumps himself in with the people. You notice through the prayer, he does not say they did this or they did that. He says, we have done this. We have sinned. Do you realize he's not saying, well, those sinners over there deal with them. He's saying, no, we, we as a people of God, we have done this. He sees himself as one people before God. Man, if we would pray that way, Lord, our church needs this. Our church is seeking. Not, not those ones over there need this and they need that. Now, sometimes we pray specifically for specific needs. That's fine. But when this kind of prayer, Lord, we are needing your grace. That, that's kind of what Ezra is speaking to here. Now, he also recounts the sins of their fathers. He talks about that. This is referring to just ancestors looking to the past. And what were the sins that the fathers committed that led to the captivity? What were the sins that, that Judah was committing that led to their whole captivity in Babylon? Two specific sins. One is clearly mentioned here. Hmm? Yeah, definitely idol worship. Not you know, It's definitely idol worship. Okay, idol worship. And what's the other sin? Yeah, exactly. The exact, and that's Ezra's point. We've done this. We've already gone down this road. Do you guys remember when we looked at Judges? The first judge, Othniel? What did he say? What was the problem? Idolatry and intermarrying. That was in the book of Judges. That's, they just come in the land. They just walk through the door, go through Joshua, did fine, right? Joshua was good. Joshua dies. The elders of Ron Joshua dies. People do what's right in their own eyes, commit the two greatest sins that God says not to do. They go to captivity because of this. Now, times of repentance and judgment and all that, of course, between there. They come out of captivity. Oh, they've learned, right? They've had to figure it out by now that these are the things you don't do. Nope. Not only the people, again, the leaders are doing this. So this should be encouraging to us and also somewhat convicting. It's encouraging because we're no different. Humanity is no different. But it's also convicting because we should see it as a serious violation of God's law when we give in to sin that God clearly says not to do. Now, here, again, he talks about the sins of idolatry and intermarrying. Again, it's the same issue we spoke of in the book of Judges. He also speaks to the purpose of the captivity was due to their sinfulness, specifically idolatry. And yet Ezra cannot help but pause and even in his recounting of all this, praise and reflect the grace of God. He says it there in verse 8. The Lord has given, basically, I, I kind of wrote this down, space for grace. He's given space for grace to the people. It was God that worked on the heart of the king of Persia to allow the Israelites to return home. It was the grace of God to lift the captivity that he led them into sin in the first place. He led them into captivity. It was his will. So he was gracious to send them back and work on the heart of the king that they would return. But he was gracious just to even allow them to leave captivity because he forgave them for their sinfulness. It is God's grace that even a remnant of his people would remain, that they were steadfast and following the Lord. 
Now, I believe this is the remnant that Isaiah spoke of, that there would always be a remnant, those that would remain true to the Lord. Now, we know this is true of what Jesus is referred to as the root of Jesse. There was a line. So we see that remnant was there, but that's God's grace. We would not pick a remnant out of this group. We'd be like, you're all done. Like, there's not one of you that's worthy of this. But again, God is gracious to say, no, I am working my plan. I will send my Messiah. My son will come, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a remnant that will remain. And what, what beautiful grace that God would do that. Ezra also praises God. And he uses a phrase here that's a little different. It says in verse 8, and gate to give to us a nail in his holy place. Now, if anyone looked it up in a different translation, maybe it helped you. Uh, what, what's he talking about there? Like, what do you think Ezra is speaking to there when he says that God was gracious to give us a nail in his holy place? Any thoughts on that? Did anyone circle that as like, what, what is this? Jumped out to me when I was reading the text. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what is that talking about? I think I originally read this passage in the NASB, and I think it used the word peg. Gave us a peg in his holy place. Does anyone have an idea what that's talking about? What's that, Kels? Uh, no. I see where you're going, though. What's his holy place in this text? The temple, Jerusalem, right? The city of God. So he's referring to a specific place. And he's saying, you gave us a nail in your holy place. Now, when I looked this up, because I couldn't really, I was kind of wondering too what it was referring to. This is actually speaking to the term nail or peg refers to a securing nail or a tent peg. So a peg that would hold a tent to the ground. The idea, and just reading a couple commentaries on this, basically the, the kind of common opinion is this is referring to a fixed settlement in the land of Judah. So what's Ezra saying? You were so gracious, not just to let us come into the land, but you settled us in the land. You secured us in the land. You drove a peg into the ground and said, this is your home. That's what Ezra is saying. And how gracious is God to do that for them? So he's recounting all the goodness of God and how good God has been. Ezra also recognizes, again, a praise to God's grace, that they are still bondmen. Did you see that there in the text, verse 9? For we were bondmen, yet our God is not forsaking us in our bondage, but it hath extended mercy unto us. So the mercy that was extended was to the king of Persia. They're already free from captivity, but they're still in bondage, right? They're still under the king of Persia. He owns the land. He's the one that's in charge. And Ezra saying, you're so good that you didn't forget us. Yeah, we're still in bondage, but you're still with us. You're still gracious to even do what you're doing, even in our bondage. You didn't forget about us. You didn't forsake us. Again, it's amazing that, that he's praising God. God granted them a temple. God granted them a home. God is giving them, going to give them, as again, we talked about Nehemiah and the overlapping, the wall around the city. And what does a wall around the city represent? Why is that such a big deal? Protection, safety, security, stability. Right? And in fact, when, when Nehemiah comes back to start building the wall, what do the surrounding people groups start to say? Well, we don't like this. We can't just go in and out as we please. We can't have authority and influence in there. They're going to be protected from us. They try to thwart the plan. If you read the book of Ezra early on, as they're reestablishing the foundation of the temple, the surrounding people groups do the same thing. 
They start rumors. Well, these people aren't going to pay their taxes. They're not going to pay their tributes. They're trying to just reestablish their kingdom to fight against Persia. They send a letter back (laughs) to the king. If you knew what was going on, you wouldn't let them rebuild this. The whole thing stops until they go back and they dig up the records and they find the original decrees of the king and they go, nope, this is all according to the decree and they allow him to continue. But isn't it amazing? Every time God does something in human history, there's always opposition, whatever it is. When Jesus stepped on the scene, opposition. And when you and I are called by God to do something for his glory, there's opposition from within and without. So again, we see God working in all of this. Notice also, and we can, I mean, I just love how Ezra is expressing all this. There is no blame put on God for their previous or existing bondage. Nowhere does Ezra say, and you did this. It's your fault that we're in this situation. He actually, as you read through the prayer, there's praise given to God for his grace. And he believes their bondage was, was just. Ezra seems to say, we deserve that. We did the wrong things. We broke the law. Now, he refers to, in verse uh, 10, the commandments. Forsaken thy commandments. Now, we might initially think, what might those commandments be? When you hear the word commandments, what do you instantly think of? The Ten Commandments. It's that and so much more, right? What does he mean by commandments? He means the law in its entirety. So you could jot down that basically he's referring to the commandments recorded in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, also 2 Kings, because that's obviously referencing what was going on before the captivity, Isaiah, and then we already talked about Malachi. So when he says we violated and and forsake your commandments, he's not just talking about 10. He's talking about we can go to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Kings, Isaiah. We can go to any of those records and show how we're doing this because they all recount the sins of the people. Yet again, he recognizes that God did not punish them to the full extent of what their sins demanded. Look, Look at verse 13. I actually wrote on mine just the word powerful. There's, there's, it's beauty in this. He says this, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, whose evil deeds? Theirs, but he uses the word ours. Again, do you see that commonality? He's saying we're all one. Came us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass. That word just means sin. But then he says what? Seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less. I, I really hope you underline that and circle the word less. Less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. He's admitting we deserved every bit of it and we deserve so much more than it. Like, like we never should have been allowed to come out of captivity. We're not even worthy of that. He says, but you and your grace, yeah, you punished us. Hebrews gives light to this. How does he punish us? Like a good father. But he says, oh, but you punished us so much less than we deserve. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I thought, God, that's salvation. Like, there's consequences to our sin, right? If I sin in the flesh, there's a consequence. I may experience it emotionally. It may be a physical consequence. It may be some kind of a bondage I find myself into. Sometimes I really believe the greatest consequence of our sin is not so much how it is seen visibly to others, but what it does to us internally. Because we carry that around with us forever. And God does not want us to live that way. 
And so I, I think of grace of salvation. I'm like, man, Lord, yeah, we experience negative consequences for our sins, but oh, we deserve so much worse. And you've punished us now in the sense of correcting us, but we deserve so much worse. I, I just absolutely was blown away by that verse when I was reading it in my office the one morning. He does pose the thought that possibly they have somehow rightly earned the anger of the Lord to the point where there is no remnant left. Do you see that there? He says, wouldest thou be angry with us, verse 14, till thou didst consume us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping. What's Ezra's biggest fear here? We're just going to sin to a point where you go, nope, I'm just, I'm wiping it all out. There's no remnant. There's no one escaping. So Ezra's thinking like we think, right? You ever find yourself praying and going, okay, your grace can't extend this far. Like there's not, there's no way your grace covers all of this. I had to have blown it at some point. Avi. Right, right. 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 Yep. And his. Yep. Paul says it as uh, God winked at your ignorance, but that time has ceased, right? And now he's calling all men to repentance. And so I believe Ezra's here is kind of like like vulnerably praying, like, Lord, don't let that happen. Don't let the remnant be taken away forever. And we've all prayed that prayer. We've all felt that way. Now, what's the truth? Bless you. We know what's the truth. Is the remnant that Ezra is referring to going to be taken away forever? No, because Messiah comes. But we feel this way. And so to me, this is, again, the heart of Ezra to say, Lord, we don't want that to happen. We want more than a remnant. We want people to worship you and to praise you. And so to me, we know that it's not possible because God said, I'm, gonna do, I'm not going to uh, leave you without a remnant. We know that he already said that. Isaiah talks about that. We know that's the case. But Ezra still feels this way. Because why? The gross nature at which they sinned. Not that we would think the sin was so disgusting, but that the grossness was in the flippid and apathetic nature we're just going to flippantly in the face of God's goodness say, yeah, we don't care. We're going to do what we want. That's the grossness of the sin. That's what bothered Ezra more than anything else. So we know, again, it's not going to happen. God is never going to forsake his own, right? What does Hebrews say? He will not forsake you. He will always know you if you're his. Yet, and we, we, we always feel this way, though. We think, man, but, but could, could it be that God is just done? And he's just not going to give grace anymore. We know it's not true, but we can feel this way in our seriousness of looking at sin. Now, quickly, I'd like to give you kind of just what I jotted down. Um, just kind of the pattern to prayer that I see here, which again kind of highlights what we see. And then we'll close with some comments to the end of the, the passage. So, and again, you can reword this however you want. This is as I was just sitting one morning kind of thinking through this text. These are some things that I kind of lumped this all together as a pattern. So here's kind of the pattern of prayer for me. So the first thing is we see the admittance, admittance of our sin. We admit our sin, right? We see that in verses five through seven. He's admitting the sin of the people. So our prayer starts with admitting our 
sin, our failures, our shortcomings. And then we see, what does he do next? He acknowledges God's grace. So he admits the sin, then he acknowledges the goodness and grace of God. Then, and if you need this repeated at the end, let me know or I can just give you the notes. Then he returns to the topic of our sin. That's what he does in the passage. It's, here's our sin, but you're so gracious and good. And then he recounts the sin again, reciting God's word about the sin. He went to God's word. We've broken your commandments. You said this, we didn't do that. Or you said not to, and we did. So he admits our sin. We acknowledge God's grace. We return to the topic of our sin. We recognize God's holiness. We see this in verses 13, kind of 13 through 15. So we recognize God's holiness. And then lastly, we request grace and mercy. So we admit our sin. We acknowledge God's grace. We return to the topic of our sin, reciting God's, excuse me, God's word about our sin. We recognize God's holiness. We request, request grace and mercy. Now, those terms are not all used in the passage. I just kind of looking at the passage and the style and the format of the prayer, it seemed like these were kind of the areas that Ezra was touching on. And I reworded it a little bit for our understanding as far as New Testament believers. Now, the last part there, request grace and mercy. How does Ezra do this in his prayer? Well, again, this last point is admitting that we cannot stand before him, our Lord. We cannot stand before him of our own accord, sinful. We need his grace and his mercy to cleanse us and remove that wall of division. Ezra realizes that our sin hinders our walk with God and must be dealt with immediately. He even talks about this in the end of verse 15, for we cannot stand before thee because of this, because of what? Their sin. He's recognizing our sin has put a division here. We need your grace to remove this division, to cleanse us of the sin so that we can have a renewal of this relationship. Now, a verse you can jot down that obviously came to my mind. It probably came to yours already. 1 John 1, 9. We see this truth in 1 John 1, 9 for us as believers that we can confess our sins and he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us. That was written to believers, by the way. So we confess our sins, we ask him to cleanse us. He does that as a gracious act, renewing that relationship. In Christ, we will never lose our salvation if we're truly saved. However, as followers of Christ, we know there are times that we make a sin decision, we find ourselves in a season where we have a division there. It's not from God to us, it's from us to God, because we've put something in between that relationship. But we can cry out for grace And God will graciously cleanse us of that sin. Now, as I said at the beginning, so encouraged by this passage this week in my reading, it reveals that God has always been and always will be merciful, gracious, and full of loving kindness. This is not new to Jesus in what we think of Jesus in the New Testament. God has always been this way. The things that Ezra says are true of God's character. He's just gracious and good and merciful and his loving kindness endures forever. It also encouraged me that we can pray effectively for one another when someone falls into sin, not in a condemning way, but a humble admission that we have fallen or we have all fallen short 
of God's standard and desperate for grace. Ezra lumps himself in, we lump ourselves in. We know a brother and sister that's in sin. It's not, Lord, would you fix them, take care of them, deal with them? Lord, we need your grace. Would you extend that to them? Now, quickly, and I really do mean that. We won't read it for time's sake, but what's the response to this beautiful prayer? Well, if if you know the book of Ezra, verse 15 is actually the end of chapter 9. And then if you would like to, you can go and read verse or chapter 10 on your own time. But chapter 10 is an amazing introduction to what happens after this prayer. And I'll give you kind of the cliff notes. The people repent of their sin and make a covenant with God to do things the way God commands them to do. Ezra has this prayer and the people of God gather and there's repentance and they're seeking a forgiveness and there's a new covenant made where the people say to God in a covenant, Lord, we're going to do this the way you call us to do. And they just repent. And I absolutely love that we get to read a snapshot of that priestly prayer. Now, if we didn't read that and we just read verses one through five and then the prayer is not there and we get to the repentance, we're like, wow, that's pretty amazing that God worked in that way. But we get a background to see how God uses his people to pray and to ask for these things to take place. And then we see the result of those things and how God uses us in the process of bringing about repentance to someone else as we intercede for them, lumping ourselves in saying, we all need grace. Would you work in this way? Would you remind us of your goodness and your grace? And so again, I absolutely loved this whole passage, reading that again, this last week or two and, and seeing God work in that. So I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, got about two minutes. Um, I was going to end about 710 because they end at 715. So any questions, comments, or thoughts about our passage tonight? Any additional things that you would like to add in addition to or share anything at all before we pray and are dismissed? I got to remember to look back at Greg in the sound booth. I don't always look back over there. So, no? All right. Well, I, I pray this has been a blessing to you and encouragement. Um, I, I know sometimes as New Testament believers, we can kind of forget about the Old Testament sometimes. And I was like, wow, that's those law books and everything. We don't need those anymore. Uh, let's never neglect the beauty, the wonder of the Old Testament. What does Paul say? These things were written aforetime for our teaching, for our encouragement to be our schoolmaster, right? To educate us of how God has worked and who God is. And so, again, desperately needed in the life of the believers. So let's pray and we'll let you be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for today. And Lord, we thank you for this example of prayer. Lord, a man that sought you and, Lord, hungered for you to work in and through the lives of the people of his nation. He was so broken Lord, I believe he, would have, he was broken for his own sin. But Lord, in this case, in this specific example, we see that he was broken for the sins of the people. And Lord, I wonder how often we, when we pray, and we seek your face, and we know there's sin in someone's life, how often do we pray this way for you to work in their situation? To recognize your grace, to recognize your goodness, to recognize our own fallen nature, our own need for salvation to realize that by your grace, you don't punish us to the full extent of what we deserve, but you extend loving kindness to us that we might repent and walk in you, be in your presence. And so father, help this to spark in us a desire to pray for you to work in the lives of others, Lord, to intercede for them. And Lord, thank you that when the people cried out to you and repented, 
that you received that. Ezra's concern that the remnant would be taken away. There would be no, no one would escape the judgment of God this time around. You spoke to that in chapter 10. That not only was it not true because there was going to be a remnant that remained until the time of Jesus. That you showed that when the people repented, that you would receive that. Extend grace and mercy again. Lord, I don't know how it's possible that we have not run, run dry the well of your grace. Because, Lord, I know my own life. I have pulled from that well countless times. And the fact that it's always full and overflowing is amazing. And so may we never grow tired of your grace. Never grow tired of talking about the goodness of God. And so, Lord, again, would you just work in all of this in our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast in you. To lift up these different concerns that we all have. To learn from this example, Lord, and to see you do great things as a result of you moving among others in their lives. To draw them to repentance that they might seek forgiveness and be restored. Father, again, thank you so much for all that you're doing in this place. For your glory. May we go from here, Lord, changed, looking forward to the the week ahead, Lord, to have an opportunity to share our faith, to impact someone's life for Christ, to make a difference, even in the little things. And Lord, may we be committed this week to being in your word, to spending time in prayer. I know we're not going to always get it right, but may our goal be to be with you and spend time with you every day and watch that affect our lives in an amazing way. So Lord, again, we thank you for all of this and we ask that you go with us as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.